0: Please open your Bibles to John chapter 20. If you're using one of the Bibles that we have under the seat in front of you, you'll find that on page 590, and we will be in verses 19 through 23 this morning. The subject of our text is the appearance of Jesus Christ before 10 of His disciples, If you are here and are new to Christianity, that may sound insignificant to you. Someone appearing before others. But it is very significant that Jesus here appears before ten of his disciples because two days earlier he had died. You don't normally appear to people after you die. So this is significant. Jesus was murdered on a a Friday night. He was condemned unjustly. He was tortured. He was executed for crimes that he didn't commit. He was buried. He was dead in a tomb all day Saturday. But on we've looked at this. On Sunday morning, he killed death. By raising from the dead. So John, one of the disciples of Jesus and arguably his closest earthly friend. He is uh, one of four men who took up telling this story of the life, the death, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they also took it upon to write this account, but so did John. We've been studying that. And we're reading now the account of Jesus after His resurrection, appearing before various followers. So that's where we are in this Gospel of John. We are watching Jesus reveal Himself to people like Mary Magdalene. It was last week. This morning He reveals Himself to 10 of his disciples, and then next week we'll look as he reveals himself to one of his disciples, Thomas. Now, as we're watching Jesus reveal himself to various followers, we're also watching people come to believe in Jesus. So, first we had John who came to believe. And then Mary came to believe. And then today, nine more disciples will come to believe. And then next week, Thomas will come to believe. Jesus reveals himself and people believe. That's always how this works. God reveals himself in his timing, according to his plan. And when he does, people Believe in Jesus. Belief in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. You've said this. Or you've heard Christians say this. What does this mean when Christians say they believe in Jesus? What does it mean when a Christian says to you, you should believe in Jesus? Well, it means a lot more than believing that Jesus existed. That's not what Christians mean when they talk about believing in Jesus, much more than his existence. So, this is what we mean by belief in Jesus we mean that we believe he lived. We believe He suffered. We believe He died. We believe He rose from the dead. We believe more than that. Not only do we believe that Jesus lived, that He suffered, that He died, that He rose from the dead... Christians, when they say they believe in Jesus, they believe that Jesus lived, suffered, died, rose from the dead for sin. Not only that, when a Christian says, I believe in Jesus, they mean, I believe that Jesus lived that He suffered, that He died, that He rose again for my sin. And that's what a Christian means when they say that they believe in Jesus. And that's what a Christian is calling you to do when they call you to believe in Jesus. So today, nine more disciples will believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ But before I preach this sermon, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come to this time when we hear the preaching of your word with anticipation. God, don't let us think for a moment that there is anything else more important than this going on on planet earth right now. So God, help us by your spirit and your word to understand your word. And to apply your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So here Jesus appears before 10 of his disciples, uh, 12 disciples minus 2. You know he had 12 disciples. Thomas is not here yet. I don't know where Thomas is, he missed the memo. (laughs) So well, Thomas is not here, and Judas is not here. Uh, Judas is not here because he has by this time hanged himself. So one disciple has hanged himself for guilt, for turning Jesus in, and the other is absent, and Thomas will join them later. And the first thing that Jesus does, we read here, the first thing that Jesus does with these ten disciples is he turns their fear into joy. I would like Jesus to do that for me. Over and over again. The first thing he does is turn their fear into joy. So let's look and see. How does he do that? Let's look at verses 19 and 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So in verse 19, we are told that they are afraid And by the end of verse 20, they are glad. So fear to joy. In fact, we're told in verse 19, how afraid were they? These are grown men. They were so afraid that they had locked themselves up in a room. And the doors of that room were locked, we're told, what does verse 19 say, for fear Of the Jews. So they are afraid of man. And for good reason, by the way. For very good reason. Their leader and teacher had just been killed for leading a rebellion against Rome. Now, he didn't really do that, but that was the charge. So their leader and their teacher was just killed for leading a rebellion against Rome. So they are afraid, obviously, because it is likely that they are what? They're next. You squash the rebellion. So they're up there. They're afraid. And, and keep this in mind. I thought of this later in the week. Keep this in mind They also have something that they're thinking about as they're in this locked room. They have something they're thinking about. It may even be what they are gathered to discuss. And it's the words that Mary Magdalene told them. We're told in verse 18, the verse right before our verses today, we're told in verse 18 that Mary... After seeing Jesus raised from the dead, she ran and told these men that Jesus was alive and that he would soon be ascending to God the Father. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have. Have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. What things? Well, that's the verse before, 17. Jesus told her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So as they're locked up in this room, afraid of what's going to happen to them, they have something on their mind. It might be why they've gathered. It is the words of Jesus and the, or of Mary. And the words of Mary are, Jesus is alive and He will soon ascend to the Father. I have no way of knowing if the disciples believed Mary when she told them that. And she came and said that Jesus was alive. We know that John already believed because he told us that he was unique and that he didn't even have to see Jesus raised from the dead. He just saw the grave cloths and the head covering, remember, and he figured it out. He said, he's alive. He's risen from the dead. But these other nine, I don't know if they believed Mary or not, but if they did, if they did, imagine, think about it, the possibility of seeing Jesus again. What if? They're thinking about this in this room. What if Jesus is alive? And I am sure. When they thought of the possibility of Jesus being alive, that they had mixed feelings. They would of course be happy to see him, but how could they not also be ashamed to see him? Ashamed? Because every single one of them, when Jesus was arrested, like wounded animals, ran and left him alone and hid themselves to save themselves. So they're barricaded in this locked room, afraid, and now Jesus, we see, turned all of that fear into joy. He was very merciful with them. So in these two verses, there's three things I think to see here. Three things that Jesus does. Let's look at them one at a time. Number one, first, Jesus comes in close to these disciples. He comes in close to them. Verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. The door was locked and all of a sudden, Jesus was there. We'll see next week that He's going to do the same thing again with Thomas. He doesn't knock on the door. He doesn't pick the lock. He just, he wasn't there, and now he's there. So this is, we'll think about this for a couple minutes, this is the new body of Jesus. It's his resurrected body. And it is an ordinary body, and it's also not an ordinary body. And there's something for us to, to learn by by thinking about this. So this new resurrected body of Jesus, it is ordinary. But it is also not ordinary. So, look with me. Let me show you what I mean by that. And, and here's, here's partly the point. Keep in mind that Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, says that this new body of Jesus is like The new body that Christians will one day have in the new earth. Whoa. Do you know this, Christians? If you're not a Christian, do you know this is what Christians believe? Eternal life. What is eternal life? Well, if we get down to some specifics as far as we can go with God's word... It means that Christians one day will be raised from the dead. That means that that you will get a brand new body. And, And as best I can tell, it looks like the body you have now. It looks like we recognize one another in heaven. So it's like the body you have now, but it's perfect But it's it's like this body of Jesus, it's kind of ordinary, kind of not ordinary. And heaven is new heavens and new earth. So new body, perfect body, new earth, perfect earth. So imagine earth, but perfect. I was so glad when I learned this. Because when I was a kid, I did not want to go to heaven. Heaven sounded terrible. And I thought that when I died, I just... I thought I became an angel. And angels did not, maybe they should have, but they did not impress me. And I, for whatever reason, and I don't know where this image got in my head, but I really thought that in heaven, I was just going to be like this chubby little angel <laughs> with like this loincloth on and wings And heaven was just flying around in clouds, like singing. And that just sounded absolutely miserable. Who would want to do that? I was so glad to learn. Okay, no, it is like this, but perfect. No sin. No tears. No pain. No suffering. What is that like? So look at this body that Jesus has, this new resurrected body. It is, in some ways, it's ordinary. I mean, to Mary, he just looked like the gardener. He is standing in the room, so he's not like hovering. This is the ordinary, right? He didn't come in and he's just kind of, you know, check this out. Eddie, he's standing there. He's not, he's not radiating, you know, beams of light from his eyes. He didn't come, you know, into the room like a meteor bouncing off the walls. And that, That's what I would probably expect or imagine. He just comes in. He's standing there. Here's another illustration that we have that this body is ordinary. It still eats. In chapter 21 of John, Jesus is going to eat fish. That is great news to me. Because I think that that means there will be food in heaven, and more importantly, I'll eat it. Luke tells this same story of Jesus coming into this room in chapter 24. And in in, in Luke's description, after after the disciples calm down, Jesus looks at them and says, hey, you guys got anything to eat? So, I mean, it's ordinary in some ways. But, obviously, this body of Jesus is not ordinary. It can go through Walls. Also amazing. I mean, it goes through walls. Throughout this account and in the accounts of the other gospel writers, Jesus just keeps showing up in places, he just keeps appearing in places. So here's the main point here. The main point is that with this new resurrected body that Jesus has, what does he do? He comes in close to these ten disciples. He does not send them a note, he does not call to them from outside the room, he does not even knock on the door. He just gets to them. He invites himself. He comes into the locked room. And he stands right next to them. And remember, this is all part of how Jesus turns their fear into joy. That's the first thing. He comes in close to them. Number two, second, Jesus speaks kindly to them. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. I think that was an unexpected greeting for the disciples. It was definitely one they did not deserve. Peace be with you. Just this greeting is merciful. They had all deserted him. They had all left him in his greatest hour of need. Where were you? You might have expected him to say. Where were you guys? How could you leave me after all that I've done for you? After all that I've shown you? After all that I've taught you? how could, You couldn't even stay awake with me in the garden when I'm praying and asking you to keep watch? And then as soon as I'm arrested, all of you Leave. Maybe a couple of you show up at the cross after it's too late. And now here you are locked up in a room. You guys blew it. I'm disappointed in you. I'm so disappointed with you. You failed me. But he doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't correct them. He doesn't curse them. He doesn't complain about them. I would be expecting shame on you. And instead, he says, peace be with you. So many ways that this could be applied. But... I was thinking about my kids this week and my own tendency to be too quick to point out failures or mistakes. And I would love to surprise them and others more with this kind of unexpected love and affection. Third... Jesus shows them his scars. So he comes in close. He speaks kindly to them. And then he shows them his scars. Verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then, after he had done all this, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So I think what's happening here is as they see the scars They're thinking, wow, it's really Him. It's really Jesus. And and, and here are the scars to prove it. He actually beat death. He conquered death. He put death to death. He is who He said He is, and He did exactly what he said he would do. And so their fear was turned into joy. He comes in close. He speaks kindly to them. And then he proves that he is who he said he is. And he had done what he said that he would do. Now before we move on, let me pause and ask a question. Isn't this still... What Jesus does. He comes in close. He finds you wherever you are. You can't lock yourself away from Him, you can't go missing. There's nowhere you can be, no matter how far you feel, no matter how alone you feel, where he can't find you. He gets to you. He goes through a wall in our text here. Jesus comes in close. Jesus speaks kindly to us. Jesus is always kinder with you than you expect. And this will be the experience of most of you Christians. If there is something about Jesus that you will tend to underestimate, it is his mercy, it is his kindness, it is his grace. And we're often, as Christians, surprised by his grace, surprised by his mercy. Surprised by His kindness. Surprised by His tenderness. It is often the case for Christians that they will hear, whether they're reading God's Word or reading a good book or hearing a sermon, They will hear about God's kindness. They will hear about this surprising love and affection. They will hear about this no matter what kind of love that he has for you. And the Christian's natural impulse is to dumb it down. And is to say to themselves, well... It's different for me, or it can't actually be that good, but what about this and what about that? And Christians need to be reminded that not only does Jesus come in close, but he speaks kindly to you. And he is almost always more merciful to you than you are with yourself. I mean, what would you have said to these disciples who had turned their back on you, who had stabbed you in the back? who had just basically turned you over, who had left, who some who followed you for a little bit and watched from a distance and then when they were pressed by the enemy said they denied you and didn't even know you over and over and over again, would you come to them with all this love and affection and tenderness and say, peace, peace. It's okay. Peace. I want you to have peace. And doesn't Jesus still show you his scars? In other words, he reminds you of what he has done. Over and over again. So We have some more verses to work through. Next, what did Jesus do with these men? These new believers in the resurrection? Comes in close, speaks kindly. Shows them the scars, reveals that he is who he said he was. He's done what he said that he would do. And so here they are now. They're glad. Their fear is gone. So what does he do with these new, brand new believers in the resurrection? They're no surprise. He speaks. He talks. He, he, he says something to them. He has words for them, and we have them, so we have words for us. So, what does he say to them? He speaks of three things that I see. He speaks of three things: he speaks of peace, of purpose, and of power. Ah, three P's. It's nice when that works out. I used to make fun of pastors and alliterations, and every word started with the same letter. And sometimes I still do, because you can't force that. You can't force that, just like, i got to come up with another P. That can go sideways. But I knew I was on the right track as I'm seeing this, I'm seeing the purpose, and I'm seeing the power, I'm seeing the peace, and I'm getting excited because those are all Ps and it sounds good and you're more likely to to remember it. And then I look up John Piper's sermon on this text and the title of his sermon was The Risen Christ, His Peace, Power, and Purpose. (laughs) It's like, nailed it, nailed it. I'm on the right track, That's what I thought. So let's look at these one at a time. That really happened. I really did that. (laughs) Number one, peace. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. Now it's true. Peace be with you. It is just a greeting. Still today, you might hear Jews say, Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. But, Why does Jesus keep repeating himself here? So I think it's more. This is more than just a merciful greeting. He said this in verse 19. Right, he says it here again in verse 21. And then we'll see, he says it again in verse 26. And that is three of the, Only five times that John ever records Jesus using this word peace. And the other two are in John 14, 27 and in John 16, 33. And both of those verses, so you've got three uses of peace right here in these verses we're looking at. And then only two other times that Jesus says that word peace as John records it. And both of those times come from Jesus during his last sit-down teaching with his disciples before he's arrested, or what's historically been called his farewell discourse. And in that last sit-down teaching that Jesus has with his disciples, the only other two places at the very end where he uses this word peace, he is pointing all of them ahead to their life after His death and His resurrection. So think about this with me. It is now Sunday night. Okay, The text we're in for the disciples, they're in this room. It is Sunday night. The last time they heard Jesus speak of peace was Thursday night. And they were the last words that he said to them in this teaching. So I have confidence saying that obviously when he comes and he keeps saying, hey, peace be with you, peace be with you, peace be with you, they're connecting it to his last words in that teaching. No doubt. Those were his last powerful words with them. So what did he say? Here's the last time he used the word. In chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. to so think about it. In chapter 16 in those final words, Jesus told them, "In me you can have peace because I have overcome the world." Or for them then, I will I'm going to overcome the world. But now think of the disciples' experience after Jesus said those words. He was arrested and he was killed on Friday night. And he's dead in the tomb all day Saturday. Does that look to you like overcoming the world? You said that we're going to have peace, and we're going to have peace because you're going to overcome the world, and then you died, and you were gone. So, no peace. We don't understand that. No peace. Peace, because you will overcome the world. You didn't overcome the world. You just got led around like a dog on a leash. You were hung on a cross. These people, your enemies, did whatever they wanted to you. You gave in to them. You died. You're in a tomb dead. We've heard rumors that you're alive. We're not so sure. We see you now. And he says what now? Peace be with you. So imagine that Friday night for the disciples. Imagine that Saturday for the disciples so hungry and anxious for peace to see Jesus overcome the world and now he's dead in a tomb and now peace, peace, peace. Here is Jesus standing before them with the scars to prove that he overcame the world. I mean, you can hear it clicking for the disciples. Peace be with you. Now, this peace, of course, is the disciples' greatest need. This peace is man's greatest need. Peace is your greatest need. Peace is my greatest need. Our greatest need is not peace on earth between peoples and nations our greatest need is peace in heaven between us and God that's my greatest need that's your greatest need so I put the question to you are you at peace with God This morning? Are you at peace with God this morning? There's actually a better question. Is God at peace with you this morning? When I say, Are you at peace with God? That makes it sound like God has offended you. The truth is, friends, that you have offended God. More than you could possibly imagine. And so the question is, is God at peace with you this morning? Well, the disciples had that peace. Jesus himself standing before them three times, peace be with you. How? How? How did the disciples get this peace with God? Was there anything that that they've done, is there anything unique about them? And this certainly is not all there is to this, but the answer to that is yes. They have believed. These disciples, First John and now the others, they have believed. So here it is again, belief in Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? What does that mean for them? Well, it means a lot more than they believe that Jesus existed. They believe that He is God's Son. They believe that He lived perfectly. They believe that He suffered and died. They believe that He rose from the dead. And if they don't already, they will soon believe that Jesus died and rose again for their sin. So, do you believe this? Do you believe in Jesus in this way right now? John 1.12. Here's the promise if you do. But to all who did receive him, Who believed in his name. He gave. Here's the piece. He gave the right. To become children. Of God. A child of God. Is one who has received Jesus. One who has believed in his name. And if you believe in Jesus, you are now a child of God. I love the way he says that in John 1. It could have said you're saved. You're redeemed. You're at peace with God. All right ways to express what he expresses here. Here he says, you are children Of God. Children, especially little children, if their home is healthy, have remarkable peace. Unlike anyone on the planet, remarkable peace. I mean, if a little child's home is healthy, you typically do not find that little child fretting or anxious or worrying. That's mom and dad. That's all the adults, right, who grow up and start worrying about everything. And getting anxious about everything and freaking out about everything. This is you, this is me. Having to be reminded of this, having to come back to this. Now, some things, you need to, some of you need to worry more about some things. Some of you could use a little anxiety. But some of you, You're anxious about things you should not be anxious about. You're worried about things that you should not be worried about. And you need to become more like, as Jesus says elsewhere, little children who know that they are at peace with God. And if I am at peace with God, then I'm just at peace. I'm good. And the more I understand that, the better I understand that, quite simply, the less anxious I am the less worried I am. And so it's a fight. then it's a battle for the typical one of us to remember this peace that we have with God. So we still have words of purpose and power. Let's move on there. There are two parts to the purpose here and the powers in between. Let me show you what I mean by just reading the verses. Here's the rest of what Jesus says. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. That's part one of the purpose. That's purpose there. Verse 22. And when he had said this, here's the power, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And now here's. Part two, or better, a clarification of the purpose. Verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. So secondly, look at purpose. Verse 21, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. What does Jesus mean by this? There's been a lot of debate over the years and different approaches are taken. What does Jesus mean here? It is probably best to stick to John and research how he uses this sent theme. So we know what John means when he says sent, sent. So I I did that. Let me read you a few of the verses where John expresses this theme of Jesus being sent by God in his prayer at the end of his life. John 17, 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. There it is. John 8, 29. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That verse is a key to unlocking the verse we're looking at now. And then also John 15, 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So read those verses on your own, but a couple observations here based on John to help us understand this purpose that Jesus gives to them and us in verse 21. The Father, Jesus says, sent Jesus. And then Jesus says, so I'm sending you. The Father sent Jesus. When I read about how John uses that and what John means and what Jesus means, number one, Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father. When he's talking about the Father sending him, he's talking about, and I'm obeying the Father. Over and over and over again. You heard me say it and read it in John chapter 8. And secondly, the Father was always with Jesus and for Jesus. I hope you heard that too in the verses that I gave you, a, a sampling of this theme. So as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. The Father has sent me. What does that mean in John? It means that I'm perfectly obey. I'm obedient to the Father. What you want me to do, Father, I'm doing. And Father, I know that you are always, as I'm obeying you, you are always with me and for me. And so, Jesus sends us. Which means we must obey Jesus. We must obey Jesus, and we must remember that Jesus is always with us and for us. So there's a lot of ideas that have been put out about what that verse means, and most of them get unbiblical, even if they sound good. But if we're looking how John uses it, then when Jesus says, listen, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. It means you need to obey me. I'm sending you. He's going to tell him more what to do, but you need to obey me. And you need to remember what have I been saying about the Father my whole ministry? He's with me. He's with me. He's for me. He's for me. He's my power. He's my strength. Same is true for these new believers. Which moves on to what Jesus says next about power. Verse 22, another difficult verse. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. What in the world is that? That's weird. If you come up after service and you do that, that's weird. I'm probably, I'm gonna, if I see you coming to talk to me again next week, I'm, I'm going to start talking to somebody else really quick. I'm going to talk to them for a long time till I can't see you in my peripheral vision anymore. If you just come up and you breathe on me, that's creepy. Probably smells bad. And, I mean, I'm sure Jesus had wonderful smelling breath. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So let me just say a few things about this. I I want us to understand this if we don't already. The disciples clearly do not yet fully have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. They're going to have that at Pentecost. If you were to keep reading your Bible, you'll get to the next historical book, the book of Acts, and in chapter 2, God sends his Holy Spirit in the way that he's been promising them. Jesus says, I'm going to go, but he's going to come down, and he's going to dwell in you, and he's going to give you strength, and he's going to give you power and encouragement and comfort, all these things. And that's going to be dramatic, and it happens dramatically, very clearly, in Acts chapter 2. And the disciples, from then on, are totally different creatures. I mean, what they do, and how they behave, and what they say, and the courage, and the boldness... It is unbelievable. So that's clearly when they receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that every Christian receives when they believe in Jesus, by the way. So they, 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 they clearly do not yet have that permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit because that's not going to happen until Acts chapter 2. So... So what is this when he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit? Two possibilities. They may receive here more of the Holy Spirit. More than they have with them or upon them now. But not as much of the Holy Spirit as they will have. I know this is mysterious. It's the Holy Spirit. So it's mysterious. So, so maybe they're getting more power, but not all that they're going to have in Acts chapter 2. Or this may be just Jesus' way of telling them that they are about to receive the Holy Spirit. Charles Spurgeon said, This was the first drop of the shower of the Spirit, which afterwards fell so plentiously at Pentecost. So what about the breathing? Breathing. Why the breathing? This is the only place in the entire New Testament that this word is used. That means that it's very difficult to figure out what this means. It's obviously symbolic. It's obviously symbolic, Jesus breathing on them. So I'm just going to quote J.C. Ryle. This is what he says, and I think he's probably right. The action of our Lord, he breathed on them, is one that stands completely alone in the New Testament. And the Greek word is nowhere else used. On no occasion but this do we find the Lord breathing on anyone. Of course it was a symbolic action. And the only question is, what did it symbolize and why was it used? My own belief is that the true explanation is to be found in the account of man's creation in Genesis. There we read, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Just as there was no life in man until God breathed into him the breath of life, so I believe our Lord taught the disciples by this action of breathing on them that the beginning of all ministerial qualification is to have the Holy Spirit breathed into us and that until the Holy Ghost is planted in our hearts we are not rightly commissioned for the work of ministry. And now finally, back to the purpose And we will look at this verse, verse 23, in conclusion. And it is another puzzling statement. There's no freebies here from Jesus. Verse 23, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And normally when you read your Bible, you want to take the plain meaning as the meaning. But if you were to take the plain reading of this verse, that would be wrong. Christians are not able or called to absolve someone of their sins against God. You can't do that. I can't do that. If you have sinned against God... You can't come to me looking for forgiveness for that. That is between you and God. Only God can grant that forgiveness. No apostle. It's obviously not what Jesus means here. No apostle ever did this. And no New Testament writer ever prescribes that or ever even describes that. So there's no way that that is what this means. It has to mean something else. So... What does it mean? Two things. Let me read the verse again, and then I'll tell you what I think. If you forgive the sins of any, Jesus said, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. I think this means as Christians, we must preach how sins are forgiven. So Christians must be about telling people the terms and the conditions of forgiveness. People need to understand, you need to understand, and I need to understand that I am a sinner. That I have sinned against God. And His just and right judgment of me means eternal punishment In hell. Away from him. I have to understand that. You have to understand that. So that I know that the only way for me out of this. The only way for me to have peace with God. Is for my sins to be forgiven. And so we have to tell people. How they may have their sins forgiven. And of course, if you were to come to me and say, how can I have my sins against God forgiven? I would never say, pray to me and I will forgive your sins. What will I do and what should you do? We'll preach the gospel. We will declare to people that they need to have their sins forgiven and that their sins can only be forgiven by God on the basis of the life of God. Death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. So so we've got to preach that, number one. The gospel, number one, has to be on our tongue. To our friends, to our family, we have to preach the gospel. Now, there's more, because if you hear me say that and you look at verse 23, there's got to be more to it. Because that's still not what this verse says. So, Christians preach the forgiveness of sins. And then secondly, and here's where where this verse is going with us, I believe. As one commentator said, we should, think of verse 23 now. We should declare boldly, authoritatively, and with decision, out of God's word, Whoever they are whose sins are forgiven and who they are whose sins are not. Do you catch what he just said? That's hard. Now that's not as hard as misinterpreting that verse and saying that we have the authority and the power to forgive people of their sin. But it is clear, and we can go to Matthew 16, and we can go to Matthew 18, and what Jesus says to the church in regards of what you do here is what's happening in heaven, and what's happening in heaven is what you're doing here, and the authority that we have as Christians that Jesus gives us. I believe what this commentator says is True. And that is that Christians, not only do we preach how people may be forgiven of their sin, but we also at times declare to people boldly, you are not in Christ. You are not in Christ. And that's hard. But it's one way that Christians love people. It's a way that Christians truly love people. If you know someone and it is evident, it is clear, you look at the tree, you look at the fruit, you're not quick to make judgments, you give your disclaimers, you don't see the heart, whatever, and so on and so forth, But there are times where Christians need to look at other professing Christians and say, you, I fear, are in danger right now. And I know that you say you're a Christian and you say you're a believer and you say that your sins have been forgiven, but it does not look to me like your sins have been forgiven. You look more like an unbeliever than you look like a believer And I'm worried about you and concerned about you. You need to believe in Christ and turn from your sin. And that is part of the purpose that Jesus gives to his church. And it is, by the way, part of our purpose as Christians that we largely neglect. For fear of offending or hurting people's feelings. But there are times, friends, where it is the most loving thing that you can do. And wounds from a friend are far better than kisses from an enemy. So let me close with reading this verse from a poem written by Edward Shalito. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that last name right, but he wrote a poem called Jesus of the Scars. So remembering what Jesus did here, the basis of this forgiveness showing that he had conquered death, And I close. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to your throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a god has wounds, but thou alone. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who has been wounded because we are healed by your wounds. Father in heaven, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. Oh, Jesus, thank you for coming and dying for our sins. Holy Spirit, thank you for opening our eyes and hearts to see who God is and what he has done for us. Would you do that again among us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.